0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your
1: first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over? On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz.
2: And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And today the Olympic Games seem like such an institution that it's hard to believe they almost didn't make it past their second time out in 1900. But of course then, with only one previous modern Olympics on the books, the Paris Games just proved to be such a disaster, and often hilarious disaster as we're going to see, that it's pretty remarkable that everyone agreed to give it another go four years later in St. Louis. And even the founder of the modern Games himself, Pierre Baron de Cupetan, later said, "Quote: It's a miracle the Olympic movement survived these games." So we'll tell you just a few of the issues
3: as kind of a teaser here. For one thing, the games stretched from May to October. I mean, can you even imagine something like this? No, <laughs> going on today they were so poorly organized as well and poorly promoted that the athletes often didn't even realize they were competing in the Olympics. And if you knew you were competing, it wasn't because of the flashy venues and the high quality equipment that you were working with. (laughs) I mean, you were swimming in the sun, you were uh, competing in track and field events throughout the woods and using old utility poles as hurdles. So not exactly top of the line stuff going on
1: here. So because of the odd circumstances that surround the 1900 games, some sport historians don't even consider them Olympics at all. They don't even consider them part of the modern Olympic tradition, at least according to the Encyclopedia of the Modern Olympic Movement. They're seen simply as sporting events that were held as a sideshow for the Universal Exposition. Still though, I mean, we're going to go ahead and consider them real Olympics. And if we do that, the Paris Games did include some pretty notable firsts. One, it was much larger than the first modern games that had been held in Athens. And the Paris Games attracted athletes from more foreign nations than ever. So it was more of an international event that the organizers were striving for. It also featured the first women
3: competitors, which was significant, and it helped set the precedent for rotating the games between cities. But to really understand the bizarre sideshow that was the 1900 games, it helps to go back a little bit. So we're going to take you back to some other olympics way back back, the ancient olympics may have their roots in greek myth but the first official games were actually held in 776 bc so after trekking on for centuries with foot races chariot competitions and wrestling matches to the death the games were banned in 393 ad by christian emperor theodosius due to their polytheistic roots And the history of the modern games might lead you to believe that there was then a lull of more than 1,500 years with no games at all, but that's actually not quite accurate. Athletic competitions, both local and national, which build themselves as the Olympics and took at least some Hellenic
1: inspiration, are documented as far back as the Renaissance. I think a little known fact here. So we're just going to give you some examples of these Olympic Games that occurred in the meantime and some of the events they featured, too. Competitors in Robert Dover's Olympic Games, and that's Olympic with a K added on. I really <laughs> like that touch. Those games started in 1612. And... People would compete in events based on their position in society, something that seems pretty unusual but maybe doesn't seem quite as strange as if you look at it as a country fair, that sort of thing. So gentry might compete in hunting or even chess. Townspeople could wrestle or do something called fighting at the barriers. (laughs) Rural folk might participate in something called cudgel play or shin-kicking, tumbling, something called skittles, or pipe and tabor music. So, a varied repertoire of activities for, for the rural folk.
3: And moving on to the 19th century, there was an explosion in Olympic events. In the 1830s, there were the Olympic Games of Ramlursa with events like mast climbing and the much wenlock Olympian Games with sports like wheelbarrow racing, plus some competition for the less athletically inclined, like knitting and a biblical
1: history contest. <laughs> There was also Evangelist Zappa's Olympics in Greece, a pretty famous one, which was heavily influenced by ancient traditions. Still, though, it took Pierre Baron de Coubertin, an enthusiastic supporter of physical education in general, to draw inspiration from these different local Olympic traditions and push for an international game, something more like how we think of the Olympics today. So Coubertin had become an ardent supporter of reviving the Olympics since he met with Englishman Dr. William Penny Brooks in 1890. And Brooks had started the Much Winlock Olympian Games 40 years earlier, and he had also corresponded for years with Evangelist Zappas, had sort of incorporated some of those Greek traditions that were going on into his own games. But since the 1860s, Brooks had been really interested in promoting the idea of an international game. The problem was he just couldn't get that much interest for it. So
3: after seeing the articles and ideas of the elderly Brooks, Coubertin took up the torch and went back to France and pitched the idea himself at the Union des Sports Athletiques in 1892. He couched the event as a diplomatic opportunity. He said, quote, Let us export our oarsmen, our runners, our fencers into other lands. That is the true free trade of the future. And the day it is introduced
1: into Europe, the cause of peace will have received a new and strong ally. Again, though, there just wasn't that much interest in this. Coubertin, though, was undeterred, and he tried to pitch his idea at this Athletic Congress again in 1894. This time, there was some success. He says that people probably just went along with it for his benefit, but still, they went along with it. And Coubertin, being French, naturally suggested that his hometown of Paris would be the perfect spot in 1900 would be, you know, as a new century, the perfect year to commence the modern games after this long lull. Somehow, though, both the date and the host
3: city changed. It was Athens that would host the inaugural games. Things went well, both for Coubertin and the new International Olympic Committee. Though the Greek prime minister had initially refused to stage the games, his successor was Game for to make this happen, and the King of Greece opened the events on Greek Independence Day in 1896. There were athletes from 14 different countries So competing. international, just like they had hoped. Exactly. And the first medalist was American James Connolly, but the Greeks took home their most coveted prize, first place in the marathon, with more than 100,000 spectators showing up to watch the race.
1: Yeah, due to the historical significance of the marathon, which we've covered in an earlier episode on the Battle of Marathon, Marathon, you can understand why the Greeks really wanted that one. Some of the events at these 1896 Olympics sound a little bit risky today. For instance, Hungarian Alfred Hayos, who won the 100-meter and 1,200-meter swimming events, remembered being taken out to sea on a boat and left to swim to shore. That was how they were going to cover the long-distance swimming. And he said that, quote, his will to live completely overcame his desire to win, I can understand that perspective, too. So even though there are some things that might seem a little bit strange today like that, the first Olympics were considered a success, and the Greeks wanted to post them permanently. They wanted to host the 1900 Olympics and and on from there. The
3: IOC, however, the Olympic Committee, they preferred rotating, especially since the Greek-Turkish war made a second Athens game seem a little less appealing. Plus, Paris, even without... Coubertin's hometown boosterism, was due to host the 1900 Universal Exposition. A great opportunity to kind of double up on yeah, major got the crowds
1: there already. You've got the infrastructure. It seems like a perfect opportunity to seems double up. being the operative word there. Exactly. Really doubling up proved to be almost the undoing of the Paris Games because it left no one definitively in charge. Instead of being this special quadrennial celebration, the Olympics just became a sideshow of the exposition, a fairground sideshow. Part of the problem was that the French government was already planning sporting expositions for the fair. And remember, this is the early years of physical education. So it was hoped that these public displays of sport, alongside other public displays of industry and culture, culture would not only encourage folks to get out there and move and exercise, things we might expect events like this to encourage today, but also promote, quote, moral energy as well, according to the Encyclopedia of the Modern Olympic Movement.
3: But as the IOC lost control to the French government, the difference between the Olympic sporting displays and the non-Olympic displays became very unclear.
0: (laughs) Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure and really what's the cost of fighting for others. These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems. uh, And the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it. And I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news.
3: As we already mentioned, some athletes didn't even know that they had participated in the Olympics. Their confusion was heightened by a couple things. For one thing, the vast number of Olympic events. According to Olympic.org, there were 95 events and 997 competitors from 24 different countries. Another problem was the extreme under-promotion that telltale word, Olympics, (laughs) wasn't used on event programs. So even though there were scores of visitors in Paris for the Universal Exposition, the Olympic displays were sometimes poorly attended both by the press and spectators. The women's croquet match, for example, had only one person in attendance, an Englishman who had traveled from Nice specifically for this event.
1: (laughs) So I hope he enjoyed the show. (laughs) At least he got a good seat. I'm sure he did. So many of the events also seem pretty bizarre today, aside from the whole organizational issue. Some of them, like archery or equestrian, were new to the games at the time, but are normal. Now, they seem like Olympic staples. Others, like gymnastics, were simply a a lot different from what we know today. In 1900, gymnasts had to complete 16 different movements, including lifting a 50-kilogram stone, climbing a rope, and pole vaulting. So (laughs) I'm imagining the little little, tiny teenage Olympians doing the (laughs) things like the pole vaulting and the 50 kilogram stone but interesting.
3: But what's weirder is an event like, say, Tug of War at the Olympics. Incidentally, Tug of War was one of the five sports where people from several nationalities competed on the same team, too. So More like
1: a field day event.
3: Yeah, <laughs> lots of strange stuff going on there. Or strange to us today, at least. Swimming events included oddities like an obstacle race where you would duck under boats. Doesn't sound very safe.
1: Yeah, but even traditional events got sort of an unusual usual twist because of the venues that they were held in. So, I mean, we all goggled at Beijing's stunning Water Cube Aquatic Center during the 2008 Games, but competitors in the 1900 Games had to do their swimming competitions in the Seine, where currents would just create these insane records. I mean, we were just talking about the 1896 Games where you'd be towed out to sea, but swimming in a river wouldn't be much easier either.
3: No, it would not. And there was also the fencing, which at one event pitted teachers against students, so that was one thing. But it was also held at the Universal Exposition's cutlery area, so almost <laughs> as if there was some sort of early Olympic marketing. Except we know going that on. couldn't be it because they didn't market anything. For right, and just easier access to <laughs> just weapons. Somebody's maybe joke, I guess <laughs> it just seemed to make logical sense to put it there. Track and field events were held on the grass center of a horse track, where there were mounds and dips and. The straightaway headed off into the woods and was uphill, so spectators trying to see the finishes would stand up, and they would actually (laughs) interfere with the runners. The hurdles, as we mentioned, were old utility poles, and jumpers had to dig their own pits. And discus and hammer throwers frequently hit trees. There just
1: wasn't enough room.
3: But worse than that, the Hungarian medalist Rudolf Bauer actually had throws enter the crowd, according to Tom Boreski and McLean's.
1: Yeah, I didn't see anything about those throws injuring someone, which seems fairly miraculous. But um, I would imagine he wouldn't have meddled if he
3: <laughs> had hurt somebody, but
1: maybe so. I, I don't know. know. Maybe
3: I'm wrong about that.
1: The marathon course was another bizarre case in this Olympics. It went through the middle of Paris, but it was so poorly supervised that many of the finishers accused the three French victors of taking some secret shortcuts, something that they backed up by the fact that the winners looked pretty comfortable. They didn't look like they had just run a marathon. But
3: everyone knows athletes are really the true stars of the Games, and Paris in 1900 had its fair share of notable competitors, too. While French athletes won the majority of events, which wasn't surprising at all since they were the only nation competing in several, so there were some events where they were the only only ones competing, American Alvin Krentzlein became the biggest name at the Games. He won the 60-meter, the 110-meter hurdles, and the 200-meter hurdles. He also won the long jump after his teammate Meyer Prinstein was forbidden to participate in the finals by his university since they were to be held on Sunday even though Princeton was Jewish. When Prinzstein won by one centimeter, Princetine was apparently so angry he punched his teammate in the face.
1: Another strange athlete story, George Orton became the first Canadian to medal eight years before Canada even sent a team to the Games. And that's because Orton, who had been attending University of Pennsylvania, where a lot of the American track and field team members were based, just joined up with their team his first event he came in last place in the 400 meter hurdles but he still medaled because there were only three competitors an hour later though he he got kind of a more prestigious medal than that he won the steeplechase which was considered his specialty and broke a world record one of the six world records broken at the games there's a city far away
0: a fiction podcast
1: the richest most powerful place on earth
0: on an epic scale. Tuman Bay.
1: Tuman Bay. Bay. Bay.
0: A vast empire threatened by rebellion.
2: Power is everything. Power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They
3: are among us. Who? Oh. First a few, and now many.
0: From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker.
1: The only thing I ask of you is total
0: and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumen Bay. Be
1: sharp and die Bay!
0: Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Stan Raleigh, who is an Australian track star, won third place in the 60-meter race, 100 meters, and 200-meter race. After his victories for Australia, then the British got him to join their team for the 5,000-meter event, since they were one man short. Now... Raleigh had never run a distance race, but because of the point scoring, all he actually had to do was cross the finish line. In the end, he didn't even have to do that. Race officials got so tired of waiting for him that they automatically gave him last place, which was enough for his team to win.
1: And I was a little amazed by this. Apparently, he was kind of walking but 5,000 meters, I can see how a, a sprinter wouldn't be able to compete in that. <laughs> it's funny he took so long um, enough for them to cancel it. So of the 22 female competitors, though, British tennis player Charlotte Cooper was the first woman to win an Olympic event. Margaret Abbott, though, I think is a particularly interesting case. She was just a Chicago girl who was studying art in Paris and entered the golf competition on a whim and won. So not the sort of traditional Olympic. Process you might expect today, but I think the best athlete story has to be that of an unnamed and unknown French boy. On August 26, during the coxed pair rowing event, the Dutch team needed a replacement coxswain, and they drafted a French boy who's believed to be somewhere around 7 or or was believed to be somewhere around 7 and 12 years old at the time and with this kid on their team they rode to victory and according to olympic.org the French kid did join in the ceremony he was photographed but nobody got his name and years of research haven't been able to uncover his identity he's the lost Olympian
3: well the thoroughly bizarre Paris Games closed October 28th 1900 and even though They seem so disastrous. At least some people were convinced by the Olympic message. A writer for La Tovello wrote November 1900 that since the games, quote, sport has definitely become a new religion. And in 1904, the Saint Louis Olympics were again swallowed up by a world's fair and went on for way too long once again. Four and a half months. Organizers didn't even learn lessons from the disastrous Paris Marathon. American Thomas Hicks won the gold after his teammate was disqualified
1: for driving
3: (laughs) most of the course. How do you even do that?
1: (laughs) It's 1904. I don't know. (laughs) Still, though, even at that Games, the St. Louis Games, records were broken. Archie Hahn, for instance, the Milwaukee Meteor, set a time for the 200-meter race that stood for 28 years. And athletes, again, captured public attention. American George Iser, for instance, won six medals in gymnastics, even though he had a wooden leg. Uh, the 1908 London Games, by that point, things were beginning to look a little bit more official. They finally stopped trying to double them up with these World's Fair. And by 1912, with the Stockholm Games, for the first time, teams from five continents competed.
3: Strangely, it may have been the Olympics' cancellation during World War I that really led to its ultimate endurance. During that time, Coubertin worked on reshaping the Games' identity moving its headquarters to Switzerland and promoting its ideology as, quote, the pursuit of peace and intercultural communication through international sport. After the first post-war games held in Belgium in 1920, the Olympic rings appeared for the first time. And Coubertin retired from the IOC after seeing Paris finally make good with the successful 1924 games.
1: Yeah, and Coubertin, Dublin and I were discussing this earlier, has an almost poetic end here. He died in 1937, making his last game the 1936 Berlin Olympics and sparing him, too, from seeing the two games that were canceled during World War II. He was buried in Lausanne, uh, which is the Olympic headquarters, all except for his heart, which was interred near the ruins of ancient Olympia. Pretty fitting, it seems. Um, His idea, though, is, I think, a good point for us to close this episode on. He hoped that the games would really inspire international respect. That was the whole point of turning something that clearly, as we've seen with these examples from the earlier games from the Renaissance, was pretty common. Turning it into something that people from around the world could participate in. And here's how he described it. To ask the peoples of the world to love one another is childishness. But to ask them to respect one another is not in the least utopian. In order to respect one another, it is first necessary to know one another through sport.
3: Just one final note on the strangeness of the Paris Olympics.
1: The Paris medals were rectangular. I mean, come on, Paris. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Rectangular medals. I guess I shouldn't really judge they only had one previous metal shape to to go on at that point that's true it is very funny today if you look at a slideshow which you can find online of olympic medals there are a lot of round medals and then there's this rectangular one (laughs) so i think that's a good time to bring us to listener meal So we got a message from Rina in Toronto and she was writing about the Freya of Arabia episode and she said that the timing of that episode turned out quite perfectly for me, so I thought I should share this with you. My brothers and I bought my mom an iPod for Mother's Day and I loaded it up with lots of stuff including your podcast and the recent episode on Freya of Arabia. The next day I listened to the episode at home and couldn't believe the timing. The gift for our mom was also a going away present as she is heading out tomorrow for a three-week trip to israel she hasn't been to israel since the 1970s and more than one person raised an eyebrow at the idea of a woman in her 50s spending three weeks completely by herself in the middle east What a perfect coincidence that the first episode of yours she'll hear on the plane over there is the story of Freya, who had people telling her the very same. Although my mom won't be doing anything extreme like crossing borders in secret or exploring harems, I couldn't help but smile at the thought of Freya's adventurous spirit living on in women like my mom. I'm sure she'll have the time of her life exploring such a fascinating part of the world. Go, mom. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so thank you, Rena, for writing in. And I hope your mom had an awesome trip and did take a little inspiration from Freya. I'm sure we all could. Yeah, I'm taking
3: a little inspiration from your mom. I think that's pretty cool. We have another note here from Laura. She says, as a home-educating mom, I use your podcast for my own background knowledge, but I also love to share them with my oldest daughter. Because of these podcasts, she's a big history buff. Listening to your podcast is her favorite audio, which is a compliment. Whoever heard of a teenage girl preferring history to Justin Bieber? (laughs) I I honestly have to say I didn't know, Laura, that there was so much competition out there. Such (laughs) stiff competition, I would say.
1: Yeah, that we were considering Justin Bieber, one of our competitors. I know. If I knew that, I'd be (laughs) a lot more nervous coming in here. (laughs) Well,
3: but thanks for writing in. We love to, first of all, just hear when people are using our podcasts as part of education. And, you know, we love to hear that
1: it can bring family members together. Sometime, yeah. So. so we have two mother-daughter, um, two mother-daughter listener meals. That's our common theme for this. So thank you both for writing in. If you guys want to share anything with us, we're at historypodcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook.
3: And if you want to learn a little bit more about previous games and some of the... Stranger sports editions that we discussed today. We have an article on our site called 10 Bizarre Olympic Events, and you can find that by searching for the Olympics on our homepage, which is www.howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class.
3: The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood.
1: The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform.
3: Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.